I think in terms of, you know, productivity is working from home more or less productive. I think the way to look at it is say it's less productive for 90% of businesses. The fact that 10% of businesses, it's more productive, we don't want them going back. And I think because we have, you know, a market system and business owners can decide for themselves, then that we won't actually see a productivity loss from remote work because we will just see the businesses that benefit the, the most from remote work sticking with it while the other businesses don't. Welcome to the PIM Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh and I'm the Head of Research at ESI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by our Deputy Director, Matt Kukoyne, as well as Sam Dimitri, the Research Director at the Entrepreneurs Network and a Fellow at the ASI. So before we start, how has everyone spent their summer bank holiday and your final chance to eat out to help out? Matt, did you manage to do it for every lunch and dinner throughout the whole of August? It was a bank holiday. I went into the office. I was working this Monday. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, I, did, I did manage to eat out both lunchtime and dinner on Monday. Uh, I got my Rishi bucks, my Rishi rations. I had a fantastic month of eating out on the taxpayer dime. Everything from sushi, burgers, pizza, uh, proper British pubs, really nice oak cuisine. Um, so thank you very much to all of you listening for paying my way through the past month. Yeah, of course. And I think in many senses, uh, we're going to be paying this for uh, months and years to come and our, our kids and our grandkids on the on the national debt for our, our joyful month of eating out, aren't we, Sam? It is a pretty strange situation. Uh, I guess to sort of put to take a more optimistic note, it's likely that some sort of bailout would have happened anyway. So at least we had a bailout which was reasonably good fun even if it wasn't what any economist would design so that's the optimistic Mm. note and the good thing is it's so silly as an idea that it probably won't last forever uh some policies have like a like a general appeal uh some ideas just sound like common sense to most people but actually for various complex reasons are quite actually harmful in this case it doesn't seem like that's ever going to happen no one's going to ask for eat out to help out to be extended like maybe they'll ask for a month which i think some have and they failed at that but it's it's not like a permanent problem it's not like the planning system where it's really really bad in terms of stopping people from building houses and making houses more expensive but you can sort of see a logic for it. At least in this case, the logic is incredibly limited to the short period of time of this August and hopefully won't happen again. Yeah, and I, I think in terms of the, the negative consequences, particularly on my waistline, in some senses, I hope that he don't keep it going uh, any longer. Um, I think just getting on to the podcast. So today we're going to discuss Rishi's tax hikes, probably needed to fund the, that it ought to help out scheme, perhaps. Uh, going back into the office and returning to schools. Chancellor Rishi Sunak has told Conservative MPs to expect tax rises in the upcoming budget. This comes among reports about potential hikes in in company, capital gains, inheritance and online sales taxes, as well as a reduction in pensions tax relief. This comes as the debt-to-GDP ratio has now reached over 100% for the first time in many, many decades. Matt, is the government right to start considering the nation's fiscal position and, and needing to get it back in order? I'll be honest, a lot of this felt like politicking rather than realistic um, fiscal positions of the government. It was a couple of days before MPs returned to Westminster and there were various stories about which tax rises were likely to go in and um, which ones were likely to be opposed by backbenchers. And it kind of felt like everything was being set up to allow Boris to be seen to be watching decisions that hadn't yet been made. Um, and it kind of felt as well uh, about like various cabinet ministers positioning themselves um, within the cabinet as hawks or dark really, rather than rather than actual policies. Um, Yes, okay, maybe fuel hut fuel juice is something that the government is actually looking at. But the vast majority of the government does know that they actually need to increase transactions, investment, employment. Um I don't see that involving large scale amounts of different 
fiscal measures being increased or you know, fiscal pressures from government on businesses being increased. I think that that's like very much, he's very much making the right sounds to saying, look, we still are the party of fiscal responsibility. Um, we need to make sure that tax rises are brought in later in the parliament and that there are some restraints on spending as well, that various demands that were likely to be made by various MPs are unlikely to be heeded well um, if they're already talking about tax rises to meet the obligations that they already have. So I think it was a lot of positioning really without any substantive measures behind. Yeah, I think at a basic economic level, surely it is completely nonsensical to start talking about increasing taxes while you're still in the depths of recession when the priority should be going for growth. And we know that increasing taxes is going to mean less investment, fewer jobs, lower wages, higher prices for consumers, whatever else it may be. Um, and it especially doesn't make much sense considering the fact, surely, Sam, that the cost of borrowing is still quite low, uh, historically low. It might go up in future. That's something I think we need to keep on our minds. There's no reason why it has to stay low, particularly if the, when the Bank of England starts withdrawing their ways and means um, uh, expansion, aka they stop printing money uh, in order to keep bond prices low and then eventually, surely, the cost will go up um, of borrowing. So at some point, we do need to talk about the fiscal situation, Sam, but is, is this the right moment? Uh, I think not because the, the sort of current economic picture is so uncertain. We don't really know uh, what the shape of the recovery is going to be like. We don't know if there's going to be long-term damage to revenues or if we're just sort of working out how best to smooth, you know, the last year or so, uh, maybe maybe it's sort of an 18-month period out over the next 30 years. It could be that the fiscal position of the government is relatively unchanged on a day-to-day basis going forward. In that case, it would have been a huge mistake to do loads of tax hikes. If doing loads of tax hikes prevents you from having that V-shaped recovery and you do end up with a lot of sort of dislocation in the process, uh, then that probably will will harm the government's fiscal position uh, in the years to come. So I think it's probably not the time to to think about tax rises. Uh, It's probably in general a good time to think about how the tax system should be structured. what kind of things we should be taxing, what things we shouldn't be taxing. Um, I don't think that sort of working out how to fill a £30 billion hole in a very short amount of time, as we've sort of seen with these sort of suggestions, is a good way of doing that. I think as you see that the general proposals put forward, especially the flat rate pensions relief, which is, by the way, it's floated every single budget pretty much by sort of usually the Times, maybe the FT, they'll sort of talk about it. It'll sound like a common sense idea, but it will never happen. And the reason it never happens is because it would be actually a really massive tax on a lot of uh, a lot of people on higher incomes who are saving. It would basically create a system where the if you would be penalised for saving rather than for spending in the short term. Um, and just for those reasons, it's very unlikely to happen. It's not good tax policy design. You know, the IFS will tell you off and say you've made a mistake. <laughs> so it's partly down to the fact that the, the Treasury and HMRC are sort of under one roof, but they have two different roles, right? One is trying to maximise growth in the economy and the other is trying to maximise the revenue of the government. Um, it is irresponsible for the government to not have papers outlining how various tax changes would work in order to increase uh, their own revenue. But... And those always end up being leaked because various people in government do not want XYZ tax to come in. So they put out the paper and they try and scare public opinion into backing, backing them away. And there are various cabinet ministers who, and one in particular who's sort of felt very well known for being Machiavellian, um, who is sort of be, the fingers are being pointed at for all of these leaks at the moment. Um, and as people are saying, well, he's trying to screw the popularity of the chancellor who as we all know from the past month of everybody dining out on his behalf, um, is now very much number one when it comes to who they want to succeed Boris in a couple of years. And I think the political economy here for a lot of tax rises, as, as you're getting at, Sam, is, is quite toxic, particularly on pensions, since it's a direct attack on the aspirational Tory voter who tends to uh, still have a lot of sway over the party. So it's not going to be 
something that's that's going to happen in reality in that sense. Uh, just getting back to your point though on tax reform, is it is it possible, or are we asking too much to say can you decrease some taxes, change around the structure of the tax system, and end up with more revenue in a bigger economy, or is that just a pipe dream? I think the the issue is you can definitely take a situation where you look at the taxes we have today, you reorganize them so that they're less disincentivizing to investment to they don't favor certain activities over others and you'll get more growth in the long run uh more revenue as a result and you could probably do that quite easily the issue is uh it's not politically easy so generally if you want to do tax reform it needs to be it needs to be in a climate where taxes are falling as a as a whole um Otherwise, you get in a situation where you have winners and losers. So if you want to even up the taxation of different types of work, so why should someone who's self-employed pay a lower rate than someone doing the same task but as an employee? Now, the, the issue is probably um, if you make the worker better off by cutting their taxes by a little bit uh, and you make the self-employed person uh, at the same level as them and they you even that out, uh, one person might have lost quite a lot, one, the other person might have gained quite a little, but those gains are dispersed. So you've constantly got that political economy problem. So that's why it's a lot easier to fix a tax system at a time where um, you're, you're doing it in, in terms of... Um, Sort of in, 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 as a revenue neutral and um, revenue negative policy, so you need a bit of um, uh, a, a bit of tax cuts to sort of uh, you know do as the sort of WD forty you know to like to to make sure it goes off without squeaking too much and causing too many problems. So that that's the real challenge. But a lot of taxes probably. In, so we, we, I heard fuel duty mentioned earlier. I mean that's a tax that is. Uh, it's on the chopping block in the long run simply because fuel is on the chopping block in the long run. We're going to be using electric cars. The government's got a target. To, I think, was it 2030 or 2040? They're going to stop selling uh, petrol cars. Uh, so eventually uh, that tax is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, but we still have the same amount of spending on roads, uh, same amount of spending on public transport, for instance. So something's going to have to give. So it's probably good if they start thinking about the long term and taking those difficult decisions now in a time where there's at least the strategy uh, there's a lot of there's a there's kind of a bit bit more freedom in terms of what you can do on policy because we're in such a such a hole right now um, so for instance looking at road pricing looking at replacing fuel duty with road pricing where you could potentially create a system where even if there are winners and losers, those winners might be distributed in a way such that it's not harmful to the electoral chances of the Conservative Party in the next four years. So that's something that that needs to be thought about. Yeah, I think another one of these quite difficult ones is the the land value tax, which any economist will tell you is an extremely sensible idea rather than having a separate business rates and council tax system as well as stamp duty. You should get rid of a tax on transaction stamp duty uh, and and make it so that the amount of tax you pay on the on the land is on the unimproved value so that you don't have to start paying more tax when you build something on a property. But of course, that could potentially hurt a lot of uh, Tory voters who have bigger houses who would end up in a higher paying a higher rate of tax than they currently do under their, their council band um, level at the moment because you, you end up stretching that out. So from an equity perspective, it's quite good. But from a Tory perspective, whenever these kind of proposals come up, it's very easy to oppose on the basis that it would be a, I think the typical phrase they use is a garden tax because you'll be taxing people on their gardens, which is not really true. But not, not that we have to care too much about what's good for conservative voters <laughs> in so far as... No, no, not our party, but uh, in terms of getting the politics of it right, I, I think the framing of policies is, is sometimes quite important. I'm, I'm also interested though, as a premise, Sam, you said earlier on, you didn't think there was a need to raise more revenue because as a basis, um, it wasn't necessarily that much of the current spending uh, is permanent and it's just temporary spending and temporary debt. But at the same time, it does feel like from this government, we, we have a sense in which they do actually genuinely want to expand the state. They see infrastructure as the way to get up productivity. They want to spend more money on, on our precious NHS. They want to spend more money on education. It seems like Boris has no 
instinct as a fiscal conservative. So to some extent, do we then now have to accept a larger COVID, post-COVID state and maybe higher taxes, or do we need to continue making the kind of small government case again and again and again um, as a way to grow, the, have a bigger economy and not have a drag on the private I sector? I think the challenge is for advocates of spending restraint to be a lot more specific and to be a lot more focused in terms of what actually, where are the easy savings? So a lot of the first wave of austerity, a lot of that hit areas that were um, quite uh, politically popular. So at the, you know, in 2009, it was pretty standard. If you listen to any sort of political pundit show, there would be jokes about benefit system being too generous and that's even in a you know show where not necessarily a right-wing show for instance but that's that's what was kind of accepted part of the culture and kind of a problem everyone agreed upon that's probably not the case anymore people probably uh, think that the welfare system might might have actually gone too far in the other direction so that so those sort of politically salient uh, opportunities to cut spending are probably there's probably less of them so you need to sort of target them and then there's I mean, lots of people talk about certain like egregious examples. Maybe you you know you identify a civil servant who's paid too much or some quango. But ultimately, um, a lot of these quangos aren't very big, so you have to start cutting quite a lot of them to make any real dent in it. the The main challenge is finding: can we you know move off the triple lock for pensions? That would be probably the most valuable spending restraint. Now, I think. I'm not certain if the manifesto pledge is sort of set in stone like it is with raising certain taxes, but that would be a real challenge politically. But it would also be something that there's a lot to recommend it for, purely because the fact if we're experiencing a massive recession, having a situation where pension costs are still going to rise by two and a half percent doesn't really make sense. It's sort of it doesn't really make sense when, you know, the economy is growing at a really at a snail's pace, but it certainly doesn't make sense when the economy is shrinking massively. So that would probably be where I would look for if I was trying to find spending cuts. But that argument has to be made, and that's going to be a tough argument to make uh, politically. Yeah, I, I think I think that's right in terms of finding specific spending cuts. It's easier to, to talk in the broad sense to cut spending, but the problem is when you start cutting individual budget lines there's inevitably losers and there's traditionally in policy there's this idea of positive returns it's once you start um creating a, a certain expenditure by the government you create a constituency in favor of that and i think the pension triple lock which has no particularly good economic or even social justification became becomes very hard to get rid of because you're, you're obviously giving a lot of money to a lot of people who are, who are going to get relatively angry about it um and can organize themselves to oppose it um, the other way in which, though, I also worry about this government's kind of direction is when it comes to the sense in which their their willingness to bail out failing companies. You've got this Project Birch, which not just supporting companies equitably, which is what the loan programs did and what the fellow scheme does, and every every kind of company can access that. Project Birch is is the whole idea of it is Rishi will choose particular businesses like let's say British Steel to bail out or or Virgin Airlines, and then you have also this weird kind of industrial policy tendency of this government where they've just spent like $500 million uh, buying OneWeb, which which might be a good investment. A lot of a lot of concerns. The, the head of Bayes uh, said that the satellite company didn't look like it was a great investment. I think that might be an area where you can say the government, A, they, they shouldn't be involved because it, it causes broader economic damage when the government starts picking winners uh, because they end up being the less productive companies and, and rather than letting the market process decide what businesses should exist, um, we should leave that to the market. We can also save some money for the taxpayer by, by not doing that kind of thing, surely. I mean, these are tiny amounts, right? Five hundred million for one. Company. I get the. I get that it's like a misdirected amount. Five hundred million, five hundred million there here. It adds up eventually, right? Surely yeah, this. Yeah, is right. Not- we've just spent one hundred and fifty billion pounds on a bunch of the furlough stuff. So, like, forgive me for like quibbling over tiny amounts. But in terms of like, and and that's the, and that's going to be the issue, right? No matter what it is that they're going to spend, it'll be like a billion pounds, two billion pounds. No matter what it is, we're going to sit that stack that up against the level of intervention that just happened in the economy, um, where the world, where the sky has not fallen in, um, and the arguments will have to be made that will have to be pointed and directed very well, rather than broad brush. You can't interview, you can't touch this, because 
unless we're spelling out exactly the reason why, people will just won't believe it at the moment. Um, in terms of sort of like, in terms of the pensions triple lock stuff that you were mentioning then as well, um, it came up earlier in the summer. It's not that it has this 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 group behind it. What it has is that it was in the manifesto. Um, and because it was in the manifesto, there are a group of people who will not let it go um, or who will see it as a betrayal to let it go. Its biggest proponent is the Telegraph uh, because it was their big campaign from a few years ago. They do not want to see it go. Um, but they also despise when governments try and move away from manifesto commitments as a long-standing position of the Telegraph. So you've got a ready-made media ready to attack it, as well as your vested interest, as you say, the over 65s. But the over 65s are not idiots. Like They know that they're getting a 2.5% increase this year while everybody else is looking at a 5% decrease in their average wage. And on top of that, uh, next year, the idea that their pension should go up 17 or 18% as part of a rebound in wages. Um, they're not they're, they're, they're not greedy. They don't want that. But they also, like, they, they know that that's what the triple pension lot means. Um, it does mean that likelihood spending in like the next 10 years is going to be £22 billion more per year um, than it would otherwise be. Until someone is willing to grasp the nettle and tell Tory voters that that's what it's going to cost, um, if that's got to go, if they're going to afford it, um, you're, going to have to set up, you're going to have to set up scenarios one against another in terms of hard choices about what it is. So... Um, Actually, the government has a few of those situations coming down the line where they can probably turn to the voters and say we need to spend on things slightly differently, even if that's Brexit, even if that's uh, the Scottish independence elections, uh, so it's, uh, election next year and maybe an independence referendum. Um, those are all scenarios where actually you can turn around and say this has got to be a reset moment. Um, I thought that would have been the pandemic. It doesn't seem to be. So I can't see that. I haven't got much optimism for them changing their mind on a bunch of other spending commitments. Um, I do. That's where I think their like, talk, talk of tax rises later down the line is most realistic because I just don't think they've got the courage to make the to cut, cut spending that they need to do. Well, talking about uh, new behaviours and new moments, let's just move on to the government's news about returning to the office, which is that they're going to be launching a campaign now next week are calling for people to go back into the office, um, telling people it is both safe and claiming offices are more productive. So Sam, the UK has some of the lowest office return rates in Europe. Is the government right to be launching this campaign to get things a little bit more back to normal? Uh, well, I'm pretty sure that this is sort of a bit unnecessary in terms of um, the people who are staying home mostly will be people who found it more productive to work from home. The businesses can businesses will be able to make those own decisions. So the companies that are finding it hardest to manage a workforce remotely are likely to be the ones that can ask their workers to return to the office and can make it easier for that. I think in terms of you know productivity, is working from home more or less productive? I think the way to look at it is say it's less productive for 90% of businesses. Uh, the fact that 10% of businesses, it's more productive, we don't want them going back. And I think because we have, you know, a market system and business owners can decide for themselves, then that we won't actually see a productivity loss from remote work because we will just see the businesses that benefit the, the most from remote work sticking with it while the other businesses don't. Now, I think the other issue is that people will return to the office if they think it's safe uh, but it's not very really clear that this current position of safety is something that can withstand, is going to be the same in the future. So if you can avoid a commute and if you can avoid all these certain risk factors, um, then maybe maybe uh, then maybe you'd be better off. Uh, sorry, one sec. Um, yeah, if you can, if you can these risks then people might be more willing to return to the office but the issue is that you know case numbers are still rising uh we just return people to school uh we don't really know whether or not that's going to increase uh cases we know that uh 
the, the, the lack of school and the lack of childcare options are one of the reasons why so many people stayed at home. So we have seen some people return to work, but I, th- I think it's very uh, unwise to really like push workers back into the office because I think politically it doesn't really make sense because a lot of people I think are happy working from home. Uh, so it's sort of seen as, you know, like I think the messaging about people getting fired actually was sort of one of those, no one's actually attributing that quote. So you don't really know if that's the actual view of the government. But that seems like it would be a very misguided approach. Yeah, I think what the government misses out here is the fact that people started work from home before the government began advising it and certainly before they uh, effectively made it um, unlawful in in some ways to go to work if if you could work from home. And at the same way, the government can't, force people to go back into work. Those are decisions that millions of people are going to make in negotiation with their their employers and their employees. And what the pandemic has shown is a new kind of normalization, a new possibility to work from home. And a lot of people have found that they are perfectly productive, they're perfectly happy and content in work from home. And there's quite big advantages for employees. Uh, You can save on commuting time, you can get greater freedom and flexibility. And for a lot of employers, uh, they can save on commercial real estate potentially and even get those, those happier and more productive employees. And there have been some studies, a classic uh, travel agency study in China where they did an, a natural experiment and, and half of the employees chosen would work from home and half would work from the office. And they found the ones working from home were more productive, largely because they, they just had a little bit more time to work uh, because they didn't have to go in and they were kind of more relaxed and less distracted. Now, I understand that that isn't it wasn't always that simple. There is a case about the needing, particularly for younger employees, to learn from those around them. Uh, you can have a loss of collaboration. But to some extent, I think that the pre-COVID status quo of people working at home five days a week is over. Uh, and I think it's... Sorry, let me start again. Um, I think the pre-COVID status quo of people working in the office five days a week is now over. We've got over 90% of people saying that they want some kind of flexibility in the future. That's going to be a demand of employees. It's going to be something employers understand. So even if people do start going back to the office, and we've been talking about this a lot, the ASI, and I'm sure Matt will come in in a moment and tell me that I need to go back to the office ASAP, otherwise my uh, my job is at risk. Uh, As we've been having these discussions, it's still on the other sense in which you're going to be going back part-time. Uh, and for good COVID reasons, you want that as well, of course, because you actually don't want everyone rushing onto crowded trains, uh, everyone being all close together in offices. There are physical limits if we're going to continue doing social distancing. I think one of the issues with the sort of uh, sort of backlash has been an assumption that basically, yes, business owners are profit maximising and yes, business owners try to arrange their businesses in the most efficient way possible. But it's a mistake to assume the status quo is the most efficient way of doing things. Uh, there are lots of experiments that you could you can embark on and you discover lots of useful information. Now, it might not be particularly efficient for you to take part in those experiments at the start. So if I'm a big travel agency, maybe I'm not going to take the risk and have it half the workers go from home and actually find that information out, uh, which was this is like an amazing case where the owner was just like, let's find this out and do it as rigorously as possible. Most owners don't take that approach, but we've now had this forced experiment. So we've discovered a lot from this experiment. So we've discovered new ways of doing things. We've discovered what the best way of, for instance, making sure everyone's still keeping track of their work using something like Slack and doing like a daily update or something things like how best to manage video calls maybe you know buying certain lighting things and we're picking up all those skills and it would be a real like shame to lose all of that uh new knowledge and i don't think we will because i think businesses ultimately know that that is a really great opportunity for them and then there's a bigger opportunity in the long run so we've probably been working from home in the worst way possible. We've been working from home, but at the same time, we have limited socialising options outside of work. We've been working from home with uh, young children, for instance, because uh, we can't go to school. We're working from home with, uh, you know, like certain constraints on broadband happening because of various in various areas. All these like little problems have made it probably the worst possible time for working for home. Uh, it's forced so it's everyone so all of these problems are 
like made it like really really bad in, t- in many ways and the fact it's still working despite that suggests that there is a lot more potential that say when we have schools open as we do now that working from home will actually become a bit more uh productive as a result that when people can actually uh hire workers who are you know pe- people are hired by people already live in these big cities to go to their offices now people might be saying, I'm going to stay remote and I'm going to move from London to, you know, two hours out of London, uh, rent somewhere that's half the price uh, and have a garden. People are going to start making those decisions. So the returns to remote work are going to increase massively once this has settled down, once time has passed. I mean, you can't have it both ways, right? You can't have both. We've had a wonderful experiment. Hasn't it been great? And terrible experiment hasn't really really been tried like those two things are like mutually exclusive what we have forced on us what bosses have had forced on them is a complete shift in how they've had to work they haven't had any recourse to say no actually doesn't work they haven't had any ability to tell people to come back and work in a different way and they haven't really even had the ability to to uh, fire people so it's not been the most efficient way to experiment. It has been an experiment. I will hand, I will hand down, grant you that. And it has made, and it's very much forced a lot of businesses to think about how they work. But first of all, it is an incredible privilege to be in a position where a you are entitled to work and able to work fully efficiently at home, um, and have a job where it is a where you are encouraged to do so in certain respects. Um, lots of people do not have that kind of a privilege. Uh, lots of people do not have. Um, the kind of money that they need to be able to spend um, in a very in very nice round, um, whether they're in London or outside, um, and they do not have actually the, even the infrastructure in various parts of the country to up. Now, um, like that, all of that unfortunately does not lead to a magical world in which everybody suddenly has beautiful offices and country surrounds um, and their job still intact at the end of this. As furlough ends, um, various companies do deserve the right get rid of staff that aren't needed or not wanted and do not want to come into the office uh, because sometimes office working actually does have benefits um, and that and if that's not going to be a conversation then we're going to be going to really be surprised when there are job losses and redundancies and insolvencies in a few months time so I, I think the point Sam was trying to get out was that we have had a relatively bad situation working from home and yet most people have said that they've enjoyed it and most people have claimed to be pretty productive and a lot of businesses have said that this is going to be something that's going to be ongoing at least into next year, if not into the future, particularly a lot of uh, big corporates have found that work from home and is ter- perfectly productive and, and whatnot. I, I think there's a, there's some potential downsides and I, I don't think most people are going to end up working from home five days a week, but even if uh, you're working from home two or three days a week, you've got a potential to then live further out and you're commuting slightly longer, but for fewer days a week, and then you can live in a, actually a bigger home with a garden as, as Sam was getting at. Um, although I think part of the government's motivation for trying to get people back into the office is quite misguided. And that's particularly on this save Pret, that we, we need to save city centres and ensure that there's enough people buying overpriced sandwiches every day. Uh, I don't think that really makes much sense. I, I, I think the fact is that if, if we do have a, some kind of a permanent shift, and I think the, to some extent we can have some kind of a permanent shift, shift when it comes to city centres, uh, there's just factually going to be need to be fewer Pret's and it's no legitimate goal of government to stop that kind of creative destruction process that needs to happen. Uh, and, and surely then the, the gov- these things to some extent need to happen naturally and, and that people and employers, employees, Matt, will work, manage to work this out amongst themselves. Or you saw the view that with this could be a complete productivity disaster in the longer run. I'm not, I'm not going to sit here with a, like a big, uh, you know, mystic ball telling this company or that company that it will work for them or won't work for them uh, because that would be um what we do know is actually productivity is down. We do know that economic activity is down. We know that GDP is down. Uh, so to pretend that everything is hunky-dory because everybody's working from home and getting on with it is just not true, is it? So we can we like there has to be a point at which people are start like start go back to the positions of which, or maybe even find new ones uh, where they're able to meet their own new equilibrium. Um, Obviously, 
I don't care about Pret. I don't care about Itsu. Um, I don't care about various small service companies that exist to provide services to companies that no longer occupy large scale inner city offices. Um, I do think a lot of this is a decades and decades of urban planning policy, uh, various forms of you know tax incentive policies and so on coming home to roost uh, b- because of the pandemic and because of the government restrictions placed on them. Uh, they are being exacerbated. But things like the fact that the UK is one of the very few countries in Europe where no next to nobody lives in city centres or town centres because we pursued a policy of suburbanisation um, and then didn't pursue a policy of proper uh, re-urbanisation um, means that we've got, like, we haven't got people returning to offices because they just don't live near them. They're not cycling, they're not walking to them, they're not cycling to them. Uh, because they can't do that, and they don't. And also, it would be nonsensical to do that because the opportunity cost of how much you'd have to spend commuting compared to your, your home life is much is a is a bigger difference than it is in uh, parts of Europe. And that's a common theme across English speaking countries. It was very common. It's very common in America, Ireland, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. Uh, Whereas, you know, people live in the city centre of Barcelona, live in the city centre of Milan and Rome and Paris, and therefore their offices are back to being a bit more full. Now, actually, their offices being a bit more full is probably going to be bad in the winter because it looks like um, indoor activity, airflow, air conditioning and so on for this year means that their cases are starting to spike again, whereas ours still have not, they're rising, but they haven't risen to the same level. Um, and what's good for this year might not be good for the long run. But the UK, the UK has to decide what it means, what it wants to do with these city centres and town centres. Are we just going to end up with um, hollowed out areas where nobody lives and nobody goes to work? Um, or are we going to start to rethink what the city really is for? So, Sam, yeah, this really does get into the debate about whether or not COVID means the death of cities, something that I'm quite sceptical about as a base claim, because I think cities have a lot of attraction beyond necessarily just commuting to the centre of the city to work. People also live in cities to socialise. Their marriage markets where you find mm. your girlfriends and your boyfriends. <laughs> it's where you get entertained. It's where you go to sports. Marriage and markets. Marriage Mar- markets. <laughs> I, 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 could, I, I don't think there's a more economics, uh, better economics classic than analysis of why people date in ways they do in different places. I think it's economic analysis of dating has, has been underdone. Maybe we can come back to that in another episode. But Sam, where, where are you at on the future of cities at well, the moment? I think if we do have sort of more of a shift to remote work, then certain advantages of cities will decline. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing necessarily because, you know, we've got lots of parts of the country where perhaps it would be a lot better if uh, there was a bit more act- economic activity there. That would probably solve a lot of political problems too. Um, one, of the, one of the things with cities, though, is that because it's so essential for you to be in a city uh, to, to, to do your work, it's pushed up rents massively, the demand. And because we haven't, hopefully, the reforms to the planning system might change this, because we haven't had a very responsive uh, planning system that's allowed businesses, uh, allowed builders to build new houses to meet that demand. You've got a problem where cities are really, really expensive for people who value the other aspects of cities. So it's very hard to be a young person in a city because you know you have to live in pretty cramped conditions. Uh, it's pretty hard if you are a couple and you want to move to a city. So. Uh, if you have young kids, for instance, you need a lot more space. So they miss out basically on many of the benefits of the city as a result. So there's lots of little problems with uh, cities being the actual centre of economic activity. Now, they produce lots of benefits, but if we can get those benefits to uh, spread more evenly around the country because of better technology, for instance, I think that's something we should ultimately be quite happy about in the long run. Now, going back to the sort of safe prep point i think probably the strongest version of the safe prep argument is if you're going to you know before the at the start of the crisis one of the things people were talking about is you want to freeze the economy in place as much as possible you don't want to destroy all of those uh relationships businesses built up um and one of the reasons you don't want to do that is because 
it's really hard to reallocate labour when you have a massive recession. It's really hard for people to find new jobs when there are loads of people finding new jobs at the same time. And that reallocation will be quite slow. So it's probably the worst time to have a big uh, shift in terms of how we work, uh, where we set up businesses uh, in a deep, deep recession. So that's probably would be the strongest version of that argument. But ultimately, I think the government, there's no reason for the government to stand up and say, we, you know, city centres should have seven of the same shot in within a, you know, 50 metre block. That's that does that's up for individuals to decide whether they prefer that situation or not. Yeah, and I think individuals will ultimately be making those decisions, obviously, by where they choose to shop. And to some extent, if people aren't spending at in city centres, it might actually mean that they're, they're spending outside and that can actually revive other parts of the country. Uh, well, that said, though, I don't think we can necessarily underestimate some of the amalgamation benefits and what Matt was getting at early on in terms of the, the great benefit of offices and that there's some classic research about how higher office buildings tend to be more productive. And that's the theory behind that is because people have more opportunities to interact with other people and get more ideas and spread and and that kind of process does die and that you can't do it as naturally remotely. And therefore, I think people, to some extent, will still be going in the office, just slightly less. But I think we better move on to our final topic today, which is the return of schools across England from this week. So the government is very excited about the fact that finally people will be turning to school. This is after quite a lot of controversy about uh, the government's A-level algorithm results, uh, which they ended up not using and then also growing criticism of the original policy to shut down schools in March. Uh, Matt, in retrospect, with the knowledge we now have about COVID-19's relatively lesser impact on young people, was the government right to shut schools in March, or should they have tried to keep them open? No, it was right to shut, school, uh, shut schools in March. Um, firstly, we didn't know much as much about the virus as we do now. But secondly, children are still vectors of the disease, still spreaders of the disease. Uh, they may not, they may not get symptoms as badly. They may not even get symptoms at all in many cases. But that doesn't mean that they don't see parents, that their parents don't see other adults, don't see grandparents. Um, and what we've seen in the United States is that young people, and especially teenagers, have a tendency to end up spreading it amongst themselves in very large numbers, and then the disease spreading outwards in single interactions to elderly parents and grandparents and people with comorbidities, and therefore starting off secondary spreads and like community transmission and therefore large-scale outbreaks. Um, so school shutting was the right decision. Going back, it's up for the individual school to decide how it is best to reopen I tend to find this kind of a debate one of the sort of worst things about British politics, that we have this managerial class of civil servants and ministers above them who demand action because the press has demanded action, because apparently some parent groups have demanded action when realistically we know it's just a couple of columnists. Um, and then they don't trust actual managers at local schools to do what is best by the local, by the local parents or by the local you know, school children, and they don't give them resource or flexibility to make the decisions for themselves, uh, and that is just a dereliction and of duty. And in many respects, Matt, you complain all the time about the over centralized nature of the UK state, but it's a perfect example of it. What Angela Merkel earlier in this crisis. Uh, said of local health authorities, actually, but also included education authorities, um, where she said, why do I bother having managers at all if I can't trust them? This is their decision. And that is the kind of attitude that I wish a few more UK politicians would take. Um, if, if it's right for one area's schools to remain closed or, because, or like one school because it knows it has teachers who are all over 50, um, and all, all over 60 or whatever. And actually, this, the average age split in UK teaching is very strange. There's lots and lots of people in their 20s and then lots and lots of people in their 55 to 60 slot, 65 slot. And that creates all sorts of very strange scenarios where some schools are very likely to be high at risk, some schools are very likely to be low risk. Um, and it's up, it'd be up to the local managers to decide what's best, not central politicians dictated to by the agendas of um, our wonderful 
uh, for us. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a case where, to some extent, you could make an argument that the government shut down schools globally and uh, across the, the whole of, of the country in, in March. But in fact, just like with businesses and people working from home, uh, the level of um, attendance at school had just completely dived by the time the government shut them for everyone but uh, essential workers. And that's because parents felt a need to keep their kids safe, the very classic parental instinct. And, it, and I, I don't think that was completely wrong, in potentially wrong in the sense that it's not particularly likely a child's going to get a particularly bad case of COVID. But the fact is that children are not known to be um, big followers of hygiene. They're known to interact with each other and then they're known to go home and spend time with their parents and their grandparents who might be at risk. And therefore, in many ways, I think it was sensible decision to shut them. I'm not sure I would have ideally kept them shut for so long, but I think the fact that a lot of schools did struggle to get kids back and get parents to send their kids back wasn't in the, wasn't completely the government's fault. I think that was just the reality of the situation uh, over that period because people were just genuinely so frightful of the virus. Um, that said, though, Sam, we're not worried about the, the loss of educational attainment here. We've got a study saying the average student has lost three months. Surely that's a huge ongoing cost to a lot of kids' education, particularly kids who haven't had good remote learning opportunities. I think it kind of depends on how knowledge is structured, right? So there are some things, say in maths, where you need to know one thing to know the other. But that's not the case for all subjects. So there's probably a case for doing quite intensive catch-up. You know, people have talked about uh, very small classes in terms of tuition, uh, which actually isn't too expensive. So there's, there's really, really high returns to quite intensive tuition. Uh, if you need to catch people up. So that's probably something that we should look at. But a lot of stuff you learn at school, you seem to forget it the year later. So if you ask people to take a test, if you talk to people to take their GCSEs one year after they've taken taken them, say they haven't been in school since then, uh, they'd probably drop down two, two grades or so on most subjects, just because a lot of the knowledge will erode over time. So that's not a particular thing that we should worry about, that specific knowledge that they might have learned, you know, facts or whatever that they might have missed out on learning has been lost, because a lot of that actually does decay. And in the long run, uh, education sort of has two real benefits to an individual. So on one side, it makes you more productive. So having better information means you might be able to come up with better ideas, you might be a more productive worker, you might be, uh, for various reasons, you're more productive in that sense. But it also is a way of signalling your ability. It's a way of showing to employers that you are smart. So that's why we have such a high emphasis on testing. It's why um, companies are much more likely to hire someone who's had uh, three years of uh, university and graduated than someone who's had three years and then didn't take their final exams even though in theory they should have learned the same things it's because it signals other things about your willingness to knuckle down it signals things about your ability so on that front uh, if you think edu- if you buy that education is mostly signaling which some economists argue uh, and which i think there is quite a lot of convincing evidence out there in favor of then you should be a bit more relaxed about uh, missing out on schooling. Uh, that might not be the case with the socialisation front, but in terms of the actual knowledge you build up, you know, it's if you miss two years of French, if you miss all your French classes for two years, well, it's very unlikely that learning French will have turned you into a French speaker at school. So you might not have actually missed out on much in, in terms of your long-term uh, employment chances. I do, I do completely accept that to some extent, particularly when it comes to university education, there's a lot of signaling going on and it's not clear that uh, students who spend three years at university but never actually show up to a single lecture and just do the minimal possible work. Are you talking about me now? <laughs> uh, um, no, no, I was, I was a very, very hard worker. I'll have you know, Matt, uh, and that my degree signals are more than just uh, the paper it's written on, but my inherent skills as an employee at the Addison Institute. But I think particularly for school education, I'm not sure the argument is as strong about signaling, particularly in the sense that as you were getting out in the start there, there is a certain set of skills, particularly reading, writing, um, numeracy, that are essential and a shocking number of kids, even who go through school, don't have. And that shows just a, a real failure of a kind of state-driven education system. And particularly for kids who come from a lower socioeconomic 
background, potentially you could make an argument that a lot of them weren't going to achieve a lot to begin with. But if they don't get that opportunity to achieve, I think it's quite tragic. And and particularly because we we know that a lot of poor students were just far less likely to get any kind of remote education versus if you've got a private school, you're because your parents are still paying the fees, you're likely to be on Zoom every day, all day, getting an education. I think you, you could end up seeing some kind of educational attainment loss. Uh, and that when everyone is educated at a basic level, and I think knowledge education is actually quite important. It's kind of a cultural literacy argument that you need a basis of knowledge on which to then have skills. So knowledge and skills aren't necessarily two separate things, but you need a set of knowledge in which to use your skills. Uh, the, the, we could see some longer term lost. And then obviously on, on top of that child socialization side of things, uh, the potential that kids are quite distracting to their parents and that part of schooling is probably just daycare for kids to get them away from their parents. Their parents can do productive things. Um, I mean, I would have I would have liked to see the schools open a bit earlier, even if that wasn't realistically so, even just for the fact that uh, I think there are some potential benefits that could be lost out on there. I think the big thing for me is like how much of it became a culture war was incredibly boring uh like mm. it was like left right who's gonna open the schools when will they open the schools not at all caring about actual scientific evidence about spread risk um it just became a question of how much do you care about our children do you hate the unions and so on and it was it was exhausting rather than illuminating in any way shape or form i, I mean matt you know my view on schooling uh in terms of Look, schooling has a lot of benefit at the margins for certain individuals, um, and it has a lot of ability to transform some individuals' lives. But in the long scheme of things, for the vast majority of people, it just reinforces sort of the level to which they were already likely to achieve. Um, and yes, it does teach some people some knowledge, but I, that, again, like Sam was saying, it does degrade relatively quickly if you're not using it. Um, and your likelihood is if you do miss your French or Spanish lessons, it was unlikely that you were going to become um, a great linguist. Uh, but there will be some people for whom that is obviously the case. And for them, it is incredibly unfair that they have been that they have missed out. Um, and there's that question uh, about sort of like the like what what's the benefit of what's the whole point of this thing? Is it to benefit some individually individuals hugely? or large numbers of individuals equitably. And schooling is one of those ones where it's actually probably, it's, it's probably large amounts of spending on lots of people to really only benefit a few. Um, and in this respect, it doesn't particularly matter for most people that they've missed out on a couple of months. Um, especially, and I think it was really telling that we reached the summer months when they were likely to be off anyway, and suddenly everybody stopped caring that these kids had missed out on months and months um, of teaching it was suddenly the summer um, and it was like well no if you cared about it you had to care that they were still that like you, you're still missing on these three months that and if it was if it really 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 mattered why do you have these three months off anyway each year like surely to go to the poorest people who you were telling me were like the most deprived um should be getting schooling throughout the year in order to catch up with their really rich, powerful friends who, who they'll, you know, who will always... I mean, there, is, there is pretty good evidence that there is a loss of attainment in education over the summer months. So those those three months are not necessarily a particularly good way to organise schooling. I mean, we only traditionally organise schooling with long summer breaks because the kids would be sent out to the fields. So there's not there's nothing inherently... This is what Sam was getting at earlier about working from home, just because the status quo exists doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best way to provide education. And this is a case where we don't have market forces working in the same way, right? So if there were more efficient scheduling arrangements, they probably would have come to the surface, but we have a massive you know, state education system deciding it's going to be these months of the year that we're going to structure it around. I mean, the UK is a bit better than a lot of countries in that we have six weeks summer holidays rather than 12 weeks summer holidays like in the US, which is crazy, I think. But, you know, they're... they're the fact is that we there's there is a degree of sort of experimentation that's been blocked in this case. But I, I would say that something that has been disappointing is that I don't think we see I think homeworking has worked a lot better than uh homeschooling or remote schooling. So I don't think we've seen the same level of, you know, innovation and adaption. And I think a lot of it is 
probably because there's not enough specialization. I mean, there's not enough benefits of scale, so I don't really think it makes sense for each individual schools, each individual school to have their own specific remote working, remote learning situation. I think it makes more sense for uh, the best schools, basically. Why can't we have uh, Eaton for All or something? You know, like, why can't the best lecture, best teachers in the country, the highest paid ones, suddenly a lot of their materials could be made available for everyone? And it, and it could be at a thing where it would make a lot of sense in that case. I mean, that does that's sort of possible with things like YouTube and uh some sort Khan of academy yeah and i think Khan academy is a really great example of where it works it probably makes sense if a lot of schools just essentially said look we're not the experts in remote learning we're going to encourage you to use these services on Khan academy and maybe you know we'll we'll find ways of incentivizing you to actually do the work because i think that's the main issue with remote learning if you just have committed students uh, and you're hardworking, you can teach yourself most things on the internet with Khan Academy or services like that. The issue is like having parents who are, have this capacity just in terms of they're not at work, uh, they have the time to actually monitor whether they're young, whether their children are actually doing these things and actually taking part. So I think that's the real challenge, basically. It's, it's getting that sort of actual like knuckle down and do do the work and i think that's probably why remote learning hasn't worked as well as remote work where it's it's people have kind of clear financial incentives to actually do the work this is what i had from a teacher friend of mine that about when it came to his students he said about two-thirds of them would show up uh occasionally one-third of them would always show up and then there was kind of one-third who would basically never come to any classes and you can't really do anything. There's nothing that the teachers can do if their students just don't log into their, their Zoom in a traditional way uh, when you've actually got them physically showing up, there's, there's, even if they're not necessarily all there in class, at least they're there some of the time getting some of the education. So I think that's that's probably the limit of remote education is for those, particularly those students who aren't motivated and their parents aren't encouraging them to, to do anything and, and they're not getting any kind of education as a result. I mean, like, firstly, lots of the people may have been in the room, but they, they weren't really in the room. Uh, true, um, true, yeah. So, but yeah, and those people who are now getting, you know, quite targeted one-to-one tuition in much smaller class sizes <laughs> benefit than they were beforehand in a disruptive room. Uh, but there was also a question about, like, you know, various teachers have a financial incentive to say that they must be the people who continue to produce those resources for those kids, because otherwise their jobs need not exist. But a lot of this is, again, this sort of short-termist thinking because teachers, the reason why we, we employ them is because we want them to have sort of targeted support um, through, through the year uh, in person during normal year. I think teachers who are worried about what this will mean for the teaching profession, no one is sat there like, like you guys were with like working from home saying that there will be kids learning from screens forever. Um, I don't know a single person who's said that like the school is going to change forever and you're only going to be listening to Zoom calls. Um, so I think they're sort of like, I think they're being naive and not producing these sort of like, yes, the best teacher in the world teaching X, Y, and Z for this, for this year, um, clubbing together resources and then, you know, doing follow-up visits to make sure the kids who are like properly fallen off uh, the radar are being properly picked up. And then on top of that, you know, like we know winter is likely to end up with another spike of various lockdowns. So how do we make sure that that the kids who are really struggling we want are going to end up with some form of schooling of some, you know, or, or at least some kind of activity? And that the and a lot of it as well, you know, schools do provide some functions that aren't just schooling. They provide caring, counselling. Um, external support when parents are abusive um, or negligent and sort of that societal function has gone at the moment um, but it's actually probably more important than, than, than during normal times so it's a, it, there are those sort of questions about how, how that sort of safeguarding aspect comes back for the winter period in a bit better way than it did during the spring 
Yeah, and I, I suspect not a lot of preparation has been done to enable, particularly if there's the localized second lockdowns and how to continue with remote teaching again in a more successful way than previously or something the ASI talked about was this idea of having four days on 10 days off both for workplaces and for schools in areas of high infection and that way are we going to try that for our office well I mean it was a specific uh specific idea that would kind of work across the community if you Mm -hmm. have people there for four days it means even if they pick up COVID during those four days in the, the forthcoming 10 days uh, they would likely go through the process of having symptoms but not actually interact with anyone and therefore you would reduce the spread quite quickly but sadly i think we that kind of shift idea just died away from government but i think that would be a good way to handle second waves if if that was something the government was willing to some do. schools have talked about two weeks on two weeks off uh with yeah. half and half classes which makes which makes less sense to me than doing four days on 10 days off but maybe the maths of it it can be be worked out in terms of how to reduce the spread knowing the features of COVID. But I think we've reached the end of our time. Uh, so my name is Matt Fillish. I'm the head of research at the ASI and we've had Matt Kilcoyne, who's our deputy director, who is trying to slowly get me back into the office uh, against much resistance, as well as uh, Sam Dimitri, who's the research director of the Entrepreneurs Network. Uh, thank you very much for listening and a special thank you also to Dan Pryor, who is our producer of this podcast. Thank you.